Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to really think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time poor and enthusiasm-rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Neil Almond. Good to be here. And Tom Oakley. Pleasure to be here. And together, we're going to explore pre-diagnostic assessments. But first, Neil, what's you reading for? What are you reading for? So this week, I've been enjoying a bit of uh, Teach Like a Champion 3.0 from the wonderful uh, Doug Lamov. It's one that I see uh, tweeted and retweeted quite a lot on Twitter. It's one that I've actually had for quite a while, but I've just never actually found the time to kind of get stuck into it. But I forget what's so great about this book is that it's not you forget that it's not a novel and it's not your start on page one and work your way through. You just dip in and out, find something that you're interested in. And it's usually around five to eight pages long. And you can just kind of really hone in on the why um, you might want to use a certain technique. In this case, I've been looking at uh, checking for understanding, which I believe um, calling it checking for understanding is uh, an alteration from 2.0. So it's been really interesting to read Doug Lamarve's take on all of that and understanding, yeah, understanding some new techniques, but also just always good to revisit and look back at the, what these champion teachers do to kind of see even something as simple as cold calling, how you might uh, adapt that and think about that again in a new light. Tom, what are you reading for? So from listening to previous episodes, I realised I'm quite a lot like Kieran and that I don't tend to read one thing through and have several things on the go. And I don't know if I'm, I'm right, I think it, maybe it was Amy Bills saying, having several things that are similar at the same time and looking for themes between them. So I've been doing quite a bit of reading around curriculum, found a really interesting blog about box sets as an analogy. Uh, that was a really good one. But yeah, the things that are kind of most relevant to this, there was a good blog that I read recently from Joe Morgan on the Resourceaholic. Uh, website uh, called Thinking About Misconceptions and she talks about how it's important to kind of seek them out and to build for them into our teaching just because we don't immediately notice them it doesn't mean they're not there Uh, sometimes they're hidden and it's worth seeking those out and that really got me thinking to some of the other things I'd read and recently Peps McRae had tweeted about um, thinking about learning and what, one of the things he recommended to read was written by himself which I thought was a great nod to himself there yeah, he wrote the learning, what is it, and how to catalyze it for Ambition Institute in 2019. And it's got nine insights. And one of them, insight five, was what we know determines what we learn. And I think that really got me thinking, particularly in preparation for this, about how important it is for us to know what children already know before we go ahead with introducing something new. So, yeah, those two things together really combined uh, in my mind about this. So, yeah, Kieran, what are you reading for? Great, great choices from both of you. Um, I'm reading, well, it's a blog by Nick Hart. And I think the title was Poor Proxies for School Leadership. I think it did a really good job of taking, obviously, the quite famous poor proxies for learning and applying them to this new situation. And I think one of the things Nick does really well is he writes with extreme clarity. And, you know, like, like, like Pepsi's style where it's lean, but you get a lot of bang for your buck. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. And I think a lot of people would benefit from from reading it as well. A great point, you know, that for some people who are intimidated to get into reading about education and reading theory, you can be put off 
because not all of these things are, are easy to pick up. You know, Neil, you've chosen uh, Teach Like a Champion, which you can dip in and out of. Kieran, you've mentioned Pepsi style, easy to dip into. But the more you read it, the more you realise there's depth there and you can keep going back to it and the references are action-packed. But sometimes, you know, that first edgy book you pick up can be so hard to decipher, you think, this isn't for me. And one of the pieces of advice I'm always giving to subject leaders is, no, maybe try something else. Maybe it's not the subject matter that's the thing that's putting you off. Maybe it's the writing style. So, yeah, find those things that are easy to dip into. I think it's always a, a treasure, isn't it, when you find one? So the focus of this episode is pre-diagnostic assessments. I think before we do anything else, Tom, what are they? Okay, so these are one of those things that you will find under lots of names. I think in the US, they're like prominently referred to as pre-assessments or before topic assessments. Sometimes commonly you hear people refer to them as cold tasks. But in my line of work, supporting teachers and subject leaders, we do them as a pre-topic diagnostic with the main aim of finding out what children already know. So, you know, using a phrase that we've heard lots on the, the pod, they're a really high leverage item because they put into the, the planner, the teacher's mind, what it is the children think about a subject already. And if used well, they can really guide your thought process for a medium term plan and particularly how you start that unit of work and whether there are any children who need an extra bit of care and attention before that unit of work comes around. So yeah, in short, they're a, they're a way of finding out what children already know. So you can map out the starting point of the journey. And I know in previous episodes talking about planning backwards. So if you've got where the children are at and where you want to get them to, then you're in a really strong position for your planning. So yeah, a good pre-topic diagnostic will help you do that. Uh, and ideally with a range of children where the classes is a picture, not just one or two children. I think what's really interesting there is the use of language, because actually before this, I Googled prerequisite maths assessments just into Google. And it actually surprised me how few hits actually turned up in terms of, as you say, Tom, you know, these are such a high leverage thing that I think you can't really think about a, a good maths curriculum really without having some idea of what your prerequisites are so I was I was quite surprised to see how few using that terminology of prerequisites how few hits turned up and funnily enough those hits that did come up um, two of the most popular ones I think the first two hits uh, came from LaSalle and Complete Maths and I know from Mark McCourt writing about uh, mastery prerequisite is a, a terminology within that mastery cycle so yeah it, it's no wonder that LaSalle comes up then with the, with those hits when using that specific language so yeah I think there's a, a good top tip there and uh, think of all the synonyms and, and to uh, think about to try and find some of these tasks and activities but I think uh, yeah Tom's nailed it on the head there it is just something to give you just a clear picture into understanding where these children are in front of me so I know what detours and deviations I might need to take on that journey to get them to where I plan for them to be. Yeah I, I think like you said Tom did explain extremely clearly so I suppose the bulk of the episode will focus on how we can get the most from them. What advice do you have for anyone who's thinking okay I, I want to utilize these as well as I can where, what do I do to get the most from them? My number one piece of advice is be prepared. And that, and by that, I mean, know your subject content and know the long-term plan, the curriculum progression map. 
So these are predominantly assessment tools that are used for those hierarchical subjects where what we're about to teach builds on what's already been learned. So it's really crucial for teachers to do their homework and figure out what the children learned before this. How long did they learn it for? How long ago was it? What were the core components of that? I know in the past on the pod you talked about threshold concepts. I'm more along the mindset, and I, don't, I might be a, a rebel on my own thing about this, but of threshold concepts as primary concepts and secondary concepts and tertiary concepts. And the further up primary we go, some of the things we're teaching, like ratio and proportion, don't just rely on one prerequisite. They rely on several. So it can become harder the further up school you go to identify gaps, misconceptions, partially formed conceptions, because lots of the learning that we're doing doesn't build just on one area anymore. And equally, you know, earlier in the school, when we're thinking about identifying gaps and misconceptions in year one, well, that's hard to do as well, because what formal learning, if any, have the children had in this area too? So no matter where you are in that, that curriculum journey of the, the school journey, there's a lot of thinking to do about what the children might have come across before. Um, I referenced it earlier, what Pepsi McRae wrote, you know, what you know already has such a big influence on what you are able to learn. So it's up to us as the teachers to figure out what, what is likely that the children will have studied and how can I find that out? And ideally, what could the misconceptions or gaps be? That first one, it sounds so simple and so straightforward, but it's so difficult just because of the depth of understanding that you need to have about mathematics to be able to trace back what those prerequisites are. And then, as you say, you then have that issue of, well, how far back should I trace these prerequisites and decide, well, this is the point I want to go from, because you know, it might be the case that if you only go back, say, one element so what you think is the most direct or the most primary prerequisite and the students don't know that if you then choose to plug that it then it then may transpire that actually the reason they don't know that primary prerequisite is because that secondary prerequisite was also missing and so you have this almost you know you could be going and if you're say if you're year six and doing ratio you could be going back quite easily into you know some elements of key stage one mathematics there if you're not careful really kind of thinking about well how far back do I as a whole class I think at that point you need to say well maybe if I go back to prerequisites and there's still some issues well maybe that's intervention land where I then need to kind of consider if I need to go back further and actually have these children been brought up have have conversations happened in the past regarding their learning if we need to go back as far as we need to do then I actually think as well a really part of something that certainly changed the way that I viewed using these was actually when I did it. So in the past, when I had done assessments like this, and to be honest, I must say, when I was doing assessments like this, I was doing them for the wrong reasons. I was very much doing them as a post and kind of pre uh, pre and post like oh look at the progress that my children have made because you know they saw they scored zero out of ten on the on the pre-topic test and then on the post test they got eight out of ten boom progress you know, I didn't actually look at why they're getting zero out of ten at all for any reason which yeah looking back is shame on me but I always used to do that at the beginning of the the unit that we would have been studying and by which time so we'd be doing that on a Monday I probably would have planned Tuesday Wednesday Thursday and the last thing I wanted to do on Monday night was then rehash and replan like a whole week after knowing that. So I actually think doing these prerequisites about a week, if possible, a week, two weeks before you're about to start that initial topic, 
just to give you that planning time to make sure actually, right, before I do this, or before we can do this, I need to just make sure I can focus on whatever that prerequisite might be. And depending on that prerequisite, that might mean, or if it's um, something to do with counting or number, you know, that might just be, you know, all right, we're going to do five minutes of counting past zero in decimals. I'm just going to do five minutes of that for the next two weeks. So you can kind of do it in those small incremental moments, not necessarily dedicating whole hour worth of lessons towards those prerequisites. So many great points there. And, you know, personal memories of doing the, the pre and post and look how great we are. You know, we didn't know any of this stuff before. And then I taught it and then they learned it. And especially with the post being immediately after that last lesson, like the, the immediacy by yourself. Well, of course they know it now because it was literally yesterday. Uh, but yeah, that, that piece of advice I've got down here is my number two, that kind of schedule it. Schedule when you're going to do this pre-topic. And my number one piece of advice is do it before the PPA in which you're going to do the planning for this unit, you know, do it in advance of that because you might do it with a group of children and we'll come on to the kind of how many kids and all that kind of stuff. You might do it with a group of children and something comes up and you think, well, how many kids have got this misconception? Is this just one rogue child that's got this outlier of a misconception or is it everyone? And to find that out, you might need to filter some of these questions into your starters or your daily fluency or all of that kind of stuff. So yeah, I think scheduling it and saying, right, okay, Fractions is coming up three weeks from now. Where between now and then can I find some time to find out what these children do and, and don't remember? The thing that might be missing could have come from several topics in the past. You know, literally earlier today, I was talking to a teacher about a, uh, a pre-topic assessment for fractions, and they were talking to year five children. They showed them a representation of two thirds, which was three circles, two colored in. And a group of children all went, well, that's not two thirds. You need two for the numerator and three for the denominator. So you need five circles. And the teacher said to me, honestly, I just didn't expect that to happen. I just didn't expect the children to have that misconception and see it as two is the number of shaded in and three is the amount not shaded in. Because, you know, these are year five children. But of course, in our current climate, with the last few years being disrupted by COVID, those gaps could have come from quite a long way back, particularly if it's a topic that was done in spring term, when the last two spring terms have been really disrupted. So yeah, definitely schedule it and be prepared that the gaps might be from further away than, than you thought they might have been. Yeah, re recent times was running through my head when both of you were speaking there. I'm all like, you know, you could have some serious gaps. How long do you think we'll exist in this state where we're trying to fill in, you know, will, will it take the full seven years from the kids who are in nursery and reception now? Or do you think we'll get to the point where we're back on track? I know it's a curveball. Big curveball, but I'll, I'll, I'll field it. I think largely dependent on the age group of the children. If we're talking about the current year twos or year threes, and they've missed some of those, what I'd call those kind of primary thresholds, unless we address that now, this year, those children are going to have that for a large part, if not all of their, their journey in this, because we're talking about cardinality, we're talking about composition, we're talking about unitizing, and if that's not addressed straight away, then yeah, there could be pretty fundamental issues, so yeah, immediately addressing that, whereas for older children, they might have a bit more resilience in it, and that when you are coming around to something like measure, yeah, they might have missed it once, direct face-to-face, -face, but they already had a few years of solid measure practice, so I think it might be somewhat dependent on the age of the kids, and how much effort you put into addressing it right away. 
Yeah, it's hard to disagree with any of what you have said there. I, I think reception classes, they're probably lucky because they might have missed out on some nursery aspects, but I think our early years colleagues will do a fantastic job in ensuring that they are caught up. I think for me, I do worry year three, potentially year four, because I think they could quite easily get overlooked in the sense that because uh, leaders might have pressure on um, SATs, for example, so a lot of their focus might be going into year two right now and uh, year six, because we know that those are now back on um, back on the radar for leaders. But I think if you think about that, year three child hasn't had a full year of schooling since they were in year one, I believe. And there is quite a quantum leap, I think. You know, at this point now, we, you know, we're getting ready to do some quite complex. If we were following the curriculum as we were meant to follow the curriculum, we'd be now gearing them up to do some quite complex mathematics, which children in year three, in my experience, tend to find quite difficult anyway. Without that grounding that they would have had from year one, from year two, I wouldn't be surprised if the SATs results of those students are less than the SATs results of the next two years. And I'll be held, and I'm happy for someone to hold me to account on that. <laughs> yeah, you, you say that, but all the other things we tried to hold you to account for, <laughs> you just sort of, you know, blame the pandemic for, oh, I couldn't do any research <laughs> in my classroom. <laughs> in fairness, I was, yeah, I was out, but. Here's hoping though, I mean, I'm, I'm, again, we laugh, but something again, I, I think I've said multiple times, I think my biggest gift, the biggest gift I think to education will be the removal of the key stage one stats at the end of year two. I just think that will just open up so much more opportunity for one, it automatically gives them more teaching time as opposed to actual test preparation time. And secondly, it's just going to allow the teachers to hopefully teach where those children are, not where they should be. And hopefully then that will continue up through those year groups as from, I think it's 2024 that they go, I believe. So yeah, that'll be an interesting, an interesting academic year. I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah. I've already seen tweets asking about moderation and you know, that, that's, that's putting the, the horse and the cart in the wrong order I think you know because if you do the maths really well you could probably show a proficient year two mathematician in inverted commas with five well well chosen tasks you know you go on enrich you could choose five tasks that sort of show a range of different types of reasoning and I think you know you save yourself the hassle of making checklists and things like that there and you know so yeah I'm looking forward to you said 2024 needle because I know it should have happened already I believe it's 2024 but don't um don't hold me to that because I'm not entirely sure. So say so I think they've chopped and changed it a few times. I think I'm very fortunate in my job. You know, I, I work as an advisor for the local authority, but that also means that I'm a key stage one moderator. So every summer term, barring the last few years, I've been able to go into so many different schools and see these collections of work. And it really stands out when teachers have adapted the planned curriculum to match the needs of the children. And it might mean that they spend significantly longer on these kind of primary threshold concepts to begin with, but it pays off in the long run. You know, I, I tend to use the analogy of a uh, track sprint cyclist as winding up that big gear. It's a lot of effort in the beginning to get this one big gear wound up, but it pays off in the long run. 
you know, and you see it in collections of work where these children aren't struggling to recall their number bonds. They aren't struggling to see that 19 is one less than 20. They're looking at numbers and identifying properties because of all that groundwork paid in earlier. And I do think that sometimes it comes down to that age old adage, you know, it ain't what you do, it's the way that you do it, or at least the way that you plan, do and review it. And I think that's what the pre-diagnostic is all about. It, it makes you review before you plan. It makes you review where you're at, the things you thought you were going to do. And it, it kind of puts you on the right path if you give it the time. And, you know, the third piece of advice I put down here was make sure if we're going to get the most out of these, make sure you've got the headspace to think about this. Because this isn't like light thinking stuff, gaps, misconceptions, and filling these kind of things. Make sure you've got the headspace to, to think about this thing. In that, um, the, the reading I referenced earlier, but Pepsi talks about that when you buy a red coat, all of a sudden you see people wearing red coat. And it's the same thing here. When you spot a gap or a misconception, you start seeing it more frequently or more, more readily, but only if you've got the headspace to do so. You know, if you genuinely don't have the capacity of thought to be putting that effort into, what, how will I see the children's thing? How will I check for that understanding? Then yeah, it will go unseen. Like Joe Morgan says, those those misconceptions may re remain hidden to you. But if you've got the headspace to think about it and you can craft the time to think about it well, then you start finding it easier to spot and easier to plan for as well. So yeah, don't don't sell yourself short by doing it at a time that's not that's not right for you. And that's probably a, a don't do rather than a, a positive action, but definitely certainly something to think about from my point of view anyway. Yeah, I think that, that was very excellently segued back into what we were supposed to be talking about. So, you know, definite, definite host duties in the future. And <laughs> I can see, Tom, you know, whenever, whenever I'm listening to your responses, I'm thinking this is the bulk of our work. You know, this is thinking deeply about what we do. And you're absolutely right. You need to almost dedicate a sizable portion of your time to the thought that needs to go into this. You know, and like you said, you will reap the rewards and your pupils will reap the rewards later on because you've done you know the bulk of the work I think yeah I could I couldn't agree more and to be honest it's the bit of my job I enjoy the most is the is the thinking you know because then I get to really try and solve really sort of difficult problems and you know when you when you see a misconception for the first time you go oh you know why have they thought this and then you realize and then you know you get better at addressing that you know as your career goes on it's, it's a fantastic feeling I think yes yeah, so. I'm totally with you on that one. I totally agree, Karen. It is really interesting, but I also think it's quite telling, perhaps, of the maybe not the whole of the UK uh, education system, but perhaps of England, the English education system, that barring the complete mass curriculum, which was recently um, made free, which has linked all the prerequisites together, is that there is no central bank or source or somewhere that teachers can go to find those particular threads yes we have the national curriculum so you might be able to take something like well obviously all of place value is a prerequisite for the place value that comes before it, all of the addition subtraction but you know mathematics isn't it doesn't fit so neatly you know there are going to be areas where it things from place value obviously you know I'm thinking about I've recently been doing a two by four digit multiplication with my year sixes you know there's a lot of place value knowledge that is needed in there to be able to do that procedure uh, effectively and you know you need to really understand what element of place value it is that the students are actually potentially could trip up on so I think it's quite interesting that you know 
there are loads and loads of educators talking about the importance of these pre-tests and these prerequisites. But as I say, bar the complete maths curriculum, it's quite difficult to find somewhere where all of these are laid out, which I find quite surprising given the hierarchical nature of mathematics. Yeah, just to add to that, I, I know that uh, OUP scheme, Maths Beat, has a kind of a prerequisite checklist and those kind of things. But when you come across it, it's rare, isn't it? You're like, wow, why, why don't more schemes have this? You know, if I pick up uh, White Rose supporting a school, the first thing I want to see is like an appraisal of what they previously learned. Like, oh, that would, be, that would be a really useful thing to kind of help the teacher see the big picture. Because it's very easy, isn't it, with a, with a scheme or a textbook to get stuck into kind of the lesson, then the next lesson, then the next lesson, and lose that big picture of where it comes in if you don't have the time to do so. And it's that kind of conveyor belt that the children can feel they're on too. Like, okay, we're doing this next topic now, are we? Like, out of the blue. And if we aren't seeing the big picture, it makes it harder for us to explain that big picture to the children. You know, I'm, at this stage in the year, autumn term, I'm forever saying to year three teachers, your addition and subtraction unit you're teaching now is effectively a place value unit. You are doing one unit of one more or 10 more or 100 more or you know whatever or less than the number you're starting on. And you're doing several tens more or several ones more. It's effectively a place value unit. But if you don't have the headspace to see that or you don't have that big picture view, it's really easy to lose sight of that as well, isn't it? It's really easy to kind of lose that, that view of where the children are coming from. And it can feel like, okay, we've done that unit, put that to one side, compartmentalize it and go straight on to the next. And I think it would be really easy for children to feel that way if we're not making those links explicitly clear to them. That's almost one that the subject leaders can look out for. Does it feel like that when we're planning with our colleagues? Do the children feel like that? You know, because I know that Ofsted will be asking questions about the sequence, but actually what we're talking about here, the lived experience, speaks to much more than you know that's what that surface question about how you've sequenced your, your curriculum might look you know because if pupils can see the sense in the things they're doing and how that relates to what's happened before then i think you've got a better chance of understanding don't you you know and, and like you say if the teachers have that big picture they've got a better chance of executing you know the the subject leader the school's sort of vision much more effectively yeah, and what I like to think about and talk about with subject leaders is sometimes we talk about the intended curriculum and the lived curriculum, but I think it's wider than that. There's our intended curriculum, like our dream, what the curriculum will look like. And then there's our planned curriculum, which isn't always exactly the same as our intended curriculum because putting it into plan isn't the easiest thing to do. And that we know the enacted curriculum means that the planning didn't exactly go to the letter. And then the lived curriculum is how the children experienced what was taught. So we start with what we hope to happen. That kind of gets translated into what's planned. That kind of gets translated into what's taught. And then we have what's learned. And there can be some real kind of fuzzy gray areas between all four of those stages from what we hope to happen and what was actually learned by those children. So the pre-topic is all about that kind of how close to what was planned was actually lived or experienced by those children, how much of that was really taken on board. And as we've talked about, you know, with things like COVID, there can be huge differences between what we hoped would happen and what was actually lived or, or learned by those children. So yeah, if we can, we need to, to do what we can to figure that out. And kind of, this is me bringing it back around again on topic, but my final kind of piece of advice for getting the most out of them is, I try as much as possible when I do a diagnostic with a group of children to do what I call a primer, 
You know, I know in Neil's blog, you talk about the kind of the previously in a box set analogy, like if I'm going to go on to a new episode, I need to remind you of what's come beforehand. So before I ask my year sixes about what they learned in year five, I'm actually going to start with what I, I think should be relatively easy questions from year two and three and four and then five, mainly because it eases them in. You know, they build their confidence and they feel like they can contribute. And it gives them a chance to talk about it from a point of, yeah, I do know a, I do know a bit, a bit about this. But yeah, start easy, give them that chance of success. I like my pre-topics to be really talk rich, really, really conversational. So for them to want to talk, they have to feel like, yeah, I've got something worth talking about. So build up to it, you know, start from several years ago, start from several of those prerequisites ago, build that confidence, make it really talk rich. And you'll get so much more out of it than you will from the answer on a page. You know, if I asked the children to circle the, the calculations they thought they could use, do using a mental strategy, and all I got was their sheet with some things circled, I'd never know why they chose those calculations. So if I can make it talk rich, or even better, they can enact it with some manipulatives and tell me about it, then yeah, I can get so much more out of it. But they have to want to contribute first. So to do that, if you can make it successful with a primer, make them feel like it's comfortable and not catch them cold. You know, the last thing we want to do is grab some kids off the corridor as they're about to go to pee and go, I'm going to ask you about fractions. <laughs> oh, I was just thinking about rounders or whatever. So yeah, build them up to it, ease them in, give them that sense of success and yeah, help them feel like they've got something worth talking about. That would be my kind of my other piece of advice for that. Yeah, that's really nice and totally different to kind of how I've used this idea of, you know, pre-diagnostic. I've kind of gone more you know pre-diagnostic quiz where you know it's multiple choice question as you say it does start off quite easily but each you know it's formal formal choice and you know each question is a you know there's obviously one right answer and then the th there are three kind of three or two good quality distractors where right I can just because I think that helps with the analysis you can really quickly write I know if they said if it was you know right um 101 in digits and there was you know the right answer or there was the digit one zero zero one and someone has done 101 and they've done that knowing that's four or five children have that misconception about place value and that they think it's some you know they're obviously confusing that it's some sort of additive system and suppose a place value system that's quite useful quick shot data for me and certainly that's kind of my experience of using it has predominantly just been through use of resourcing like that but I can certainly see how yeah getting that talk getting manipulatives because I know that that would link really well with our with the previous episode you know Gareth on manipulatives and other key stage too you know you almost want to see what are the prerequisites that these children understand they can actually do with these manipulatives so I think getting that talk in there getting those manipulatives in as well is uh, a really valuable, valuable idea and not something I've considered before, but definitely will be going forward. Yeah, so I, th I think we're quite naturally moving into the next question. What are the practical considerations we need to take to get to really get the most from them? You know, like you say, and I'm really keen to hear what your system sounds like and looks like, Tom, because it sounds like it's completely different to the one that Neil has imagined. And it's almost looking at, well, what are the merits of both? I've, over the last few years, tried several different approaches, and it partly comes down to how much time you have, how many children you want to ask, and how, like I said, how much headspace you've got for kind of analysing all of this. 
I kind of came round to the idea of doing pre-topic assessments back in 2014 when I spent two years teaching in Thailand and I worked in an international school out there. The big thing that made me think was lots of these children have come from all over the world. I might have a class of 21 children, but I've got children here from seven different countries and some of them have just come in the last few weeks or they came halfway through year two or, or those kind of things. So in that instance, I knew that using a quiz wouldn't be enough. I needed them to show me. I needed them to draw as much as possible because we didn't have like boxes of Numicon or, or counters or those kind of things. So that's kind of how I fell into the practical draw it. You know, in Cambridgeshire, we talk about the kind of the build it, draw it, say it, write it, which matches nicely with the kind of the CPAL. But, you know, the drawing and the manipulating whatever we could find, counting objects, really brought out the conversation. But you can't do that with a large group of children. You can't do it well with a large group of children. You know, you end up relying on kind of the uh, Matt Swain style, having a route around the classroom and trying to catch as many children mid-conversation as possible. Or you take small group at a time and hope that they are like representative of a broader population within the class. You pick out the things they're saying and then you make your kind of your multiple choice questions and ask them more broadly to the class. So yeah, largely the practicalities of it depend on how much time you've got, how many children you've got, the range of starting points. You know, if you are fortunate enough to work in a school like Matt Swain's where at STEP they are filling gaps the moment they arise, we're assuming that the gap between your lowest attainers and highest attainers just isn't that broad. But if your school is nothing like that and those gaps go unaddressed kind of thing, then the gaps could be huge. So in that instance, I'm not yet convinced that one quiz for all children would be enough. You might need different quizzes up your sleeve or at least to direct some children to different questions. You know, these children want you to look at questions one to six, whereas these children want you to look at four to eight but it has to be manageable for you, you know? So you have to think about your context, how much time you've got, your resources available to you. But I definitely wouldn't say there's like one size fits all, but the conversational style approach really paid dividends for me. And it's now that kind of approach that we use a lot in Cambridge when supporting schools with it. Yeah, we're, um, to offer a slightly different approach, we're quite fortunate in that we are a, uh, a complete maths classroom subscriber. So we have access to uh, the complete maths curriculum. Uh, we use the whole suite. I don't want this to be a, it will end up being, but I don't want it to be a, uh, an advert for the, the classroom. But what I find particularly effective is because those prerequisites are in, have been mapped out, whenever we get students to do an online quiz, whether that be homework. So because I have um, some year six students, what I've done over the last six to eight weeks is that their homework has been about a 60 minute assessment based on stage one, which is effectively someone who's in their first year of mathematical education, stage two. So I have data for these students, basically that covers the whole of math that they should have been taught. And when you go to add your next objective into the lesson planner, complete maths will show you the percentage of students who are complete maths will show you the percentage of students if they've answered a question that is a prerequisite it will tell you 50 percent of students don't know this yet based on the things that you've already asked so from there i can use that to adapt my planning straight away so if i know if it's a 
an immediate prerequisite because with complete maths, you can go back three levels worth of prerequisites. So I know that if it's a, an immediate prerequisite and I'm only showing, and it's only showing, um, you know, 50% of the class were able to do this, then I know that it's a good signal for me to go, okay, well, actually, before I'm going to teach, uh, there's an example right here I have. So we were doing um, establishing of a number up to 100 is prime, but turns out there's a prerequisite for that for understanding the vocabulary of, you know, composite and prime, num prime numbers itself before they actually go to learn what these, um, the first 100 prime numbers are. So that just really just meant that, okay, so this lesson, it's actually just going to be pretty much a vocabulary lesson with a bit of understanding of what these first couple of prime numbers are, but I'm not going to go, you know, straight into uh, all of these prime numbers yet. And so we're new to it. So we only started using it in September. Obviously, you know, the prerequisites that it gives you will only be as good as the people who have mapped this curriculum out. For the busy teacher who perhaps doesn't always have that headspace to do those talk tasks, or what it does is that it gives you then that um, starting point off where you can at least think about, right, well, who am I going to talk to? Who is in that 50% who doesn't know this? And then you can take your sample perhaps the other way. So it kind of almost a reverse to how um, Tom has suggested it, but that's just because this is what this platform is able to do. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. And, and I love that it's curriculum mapped. You know, I, I should, I always say that curriculum assessment should be intertwined. They should be mapped together. And I, I would say wherever possible, we should be trying to use curriculum guidance that or documents that's got assessment built in, you know. So if the, the curriculum you're using, whether that scheme has prior year content, it should be clear to you which of it's the most important stuff, which is the stuff that we expect the children to remember they spend the most amount of time on. And I know there are more and more assessments now that have that built in diagnostic for when children have done their, their results, but they're more the kind of the summative event. You know, when you type in the children's responses, it then goes, this is a prerequisite, you know, and these, if they put this answer, then these are the likely misconceptions. It's great that these companies are thinking this way and trying to take some of that burden from the teacher. But at the same time, I quite like the teachers to have done that thinking themselves, because as we've talked about, you guys have mentioned on the, on the podcast before, planning is more than 50% thinking. It's not the filling in the form. It's not the making the resources. It's the thought process that goes into it. So you need to know the whys, why these things are in in your curriculum sequence. So yeah, I think one of the big practicalities is knowing which is, is the best tool that's most closely aligned to your curriculum and how can you make the most out of that. But yeah, just kind of going back to the approach of talking with a group of children, I'm very fortunate that as an outsider coming in, I also give the teachers a different perspective because they don't have to do the prerequisite when I'm in. They can observe me asking the children the questions and again, that gives them that third person perspective. They've got more headspace to think about how the children are responding because they're not thinking of which question should I ask next, which manipulatives should I get out, all of that kind of stuff. They're just observing the learning. And I think in my dream scenario, there would be a combination of the MCQs that we've talked about, you know, that kind of prerequisites linked to the curriculum, but also a physical, inactive, dialogue rich conversation where ideally the teacher gets to be an observer of the conversation happening. I think that would be kind of like the, go the golden kind of combination of all those things together. I think that would be my dream scenario. Yeah, as, as I'm sitting listening to you guys, I'm thinking, okay, how can I take all these great ideas and mold them into one sort of super idea? You know, and you're coming down to see us 
hopefully in the spring, Tom, I'm going to try between now and then to get at least some teachers on board with testing out a more dialogue rich version. Because I think at the moment, we're not exclusively multiple choice quiz, but more our teachers, because they spend three, four years in the same year group, they know what, like you said, at the very start, what's coming. And so they will choose questions in their, in their five a day, you know, the retrieval practice opportunities that sort of foreshadow what's coming in the future. And like I said, it's almost about, can we take those principles and then look at, you know, what else we do? You know, it could be, you know, with the six children that we really want to understand what they know. And I'm, I'm definitely going to be, you know, listening back to this and trying to come up with something with, you know, you know, those teachers who like to be first responders, you know, the, the early adopters and see what we can, what we can sort of make, because I think, yeah, the, the principles you guys have outlined and the practicalities, I think make a whole lot of, whole lot of sense. Yeah. And this is the point where I don't intend to do a plug here and you can feel free to edit this bit out, but in Cambridgeshire, we are doing a project with schools who really want to improve the outcomes for disadvantaged pupils. And one of the things that we noticed was, is that lots of these disadvantaged pupils have gaps that are sometimes unexpected. And they might be gaps in vocabulary, or they might be gaps in the way in which children see the structure of the maths. So we made a resource called the Diagnostic Assessment Toolkit. And in it, it gives you kind of a pricey of what the children should have learned previously, the words they should be familiar with, an outline of the most common misconceptions you might see from the previous year group, and then strategies for addressing that. And then a suggestion of four tasks, three of which will be very much a kind of practical, talk-rich task, and one will be very much a kind of multiple choice kind of thing. And it's up to teachers to go, right, if I want to learn this thing and find out this vocab, which of these tasks might best give me that or which combination of these tasks? And it's having a system or structure in place like that where the inexperienced teacher that doesn't have the subject knowledge has a resource that they can grab off the shelf and they can read and get their head around in 10 minutes or less rather than them having to do that extensive homework. And it's great that there are more schemes that have that kind of prerequisite built in. But I'm always saying to these teachers, don't just look at the previous year you know if I pick up the diagnostic assessment toolkit for year six it's only got questions in from year five but we have one for year one all the way through to six so if you have the pack at your school don't be afraid to go back further so yeah I think having something like that that eases the lo load for the teacher without removing the thinking that that's like kind of the, the golden idea right there a bit like you were talking about with Gareth with manipulatives you don't want it just to be a procedure for getting something done and it removes the thinking from the process. You need the thinking to be integral to it. I think the other element when it comes to practicalities, and I think it might be what could potentially stop some teachers from doing such things, particularly if you're in a, a, a two-form entry, is that idea that, or there's that expectation that both classes uh, move forward at exactly the same pace, at exactly the same time. So if they are on, and I apologise, White Rose, I'm just choosing your um, schemes at the top of my head. If they are doing multiplication and there is small step eight in year four, you know, there is that expectation. And some leaders, you know, think of it as a, you know, a matter of pride that they can go into their classroom, into any year four classroom. And if they've just seen the starter of that particular lesson, then when they go next door, they'll be going and seeing the kind of the main teaching then of exactly the same lesson. And so when we come to the, the practicalities of using these things, it is empowering teachers to have the fluidity to go off plan and go off the scheme if this is what 
the data is telling you to, you know, when we, we talk about responsive teaching at its core, that is what responsive teaching is having the, the freedom and that confidence, that expertise to go off the plan, because, you know, I could teach the students this, but they are not going to learn it particularly well, or they're not going to learn it securely. You know, that's not going to be another secure piece of Jenga on that tower of mathematics. I know Mark McCoy is a, a fan of that particular analogy, and I think it holds up well. You need to go and make sure that that base is secure, not just plowing through on regardless, despite the fact that this data is saying, you know, they are not secure in this particular element of mathematics. Yeah, I think what a cracking point that is, really, because even in the summer, Amanda Spielman from Ofsted was saying, we expect schools to be adapting their curriculum to what children need right now, not just ploughing on regardless. That is not a direct quote, by the way. That's me butchering her words. Um, but it's encouraging that that is the expectation. We should be assessing what children need and adapting our, our plan, our provision for it. And if we're not, we're doing ourselves a disservice. We're doing the children a disservice. You know, it, it can feel like that doing a diagnostic is one extra job, an extra thing we have to find time for. But ultimately, it's an efficiency. It, there's an economy in here because you are avoiding the potential opportunity cost of starting a unit of work and getting into it and going, oh, I've started in the wrong place. You know, so for me, it's all about finding those efficiencies and if we can find out what the most useful place to start in a unit is and that saves us time further down the line, great. Or if we find out that this unit's going to take us longer than the plan says it should, should, then it's worth doing. So, yeah, absolutely. Responsive, uh, responsive assessment, all of that responsive teaching at the heart of it. So, yeah, great point, Neil. I think I've mentioned before how bad I am at pace with partner classes. And at the minute, we've got this really good example because my wife's year group partner is an ECT. And so you've got this husband and wife duo teaching year one classes for the last six weeks. And I'm way behind where she is because she's been doing year six or year one, sorry, for a long time. And she knows this inside out. Whereas I'm like with my ACT sort of um, teacher thinking, OK, this is why we're doing this. Let's go slowly through this because we're going to we're going to see gains in the long run. Um, and yeah, it, it's it, it just shows you how different, you know, even though we've been teaching pretty much the same amount of time, have reasonably similar levels of experience in terms of the sequence that, her, that the year ones are going through and um, but I'm yeah so much slower I don't know what that says about me and um, <laughs> I think it, I think it says you're careful Kieran. I think that's good it says it says you're careful and I'm not I'm not trying for one minute to say that Mrs Mackle isn't careful uh but what what I think is really important there is the the, the thing we probably haven't touched on is just because you have two form entry or three form entry, it doesn't mean that those classes need to go at the same pace. You know, the gaps or misconceptions that might exist in one room, there's a good chance they're going to be different from the room next door if they've had different teachers in the past. You know, that is just the nature of school. We're, we are not robot teachers. We're not all teaching it in the same way with exactly the same examples. And in the blog post from Joe Morgan earlier, she talked about you know, I'm at fault for some of these children's misconceptions. I gave them examples that led them down the path of misconception. And we can all be guilty of doing that. You think, oh, I'm just going to show you a few more examples, completely unaware that these examples are leading to an overgeneralization. So yeah, there, there will be those occasions when parallel classes definitely shouldn't be at the, at the same point, because that's not what the, the children in the class need. Yeah, no, Mrs. Maggle's the best teacher I've ever seen teach, but she doesn't listen to the podcast. So 
she'll never hear me say that, will she? <laughs> um, and it's it's usually I'm I'm usually a lot slower at the moment, you know, because I'm also narrating my decision making process for the observing teacher. I'm thinking I'm doing this because of this, and then we really want to focus on things. So yeah, but yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you. I think it's each class, you know, completely different from every other class that you've taught. You know, a lot of commonalities, but uh, being responsive, you know, the, the more I think about it, the more important that uh, that is. You know, it should be you know teaching one on one really. So earlier we mentioned avoiding this kind of pre-diagnostic assessment when we didn't have the requisite headspace. Are there any other times that we should try and avoid utilising them? I would always say, and you guys might have heard me say this before at MathsCom, avoid doing any form of assessment when the children and yourself are just too tired. You know, like, yeah, I've got multiplication starting in January in the new year, but today just happens to be the Christmas production. I'm not going to get the kids right then. You know, this is they are not going to have their attention on what I'm talking about. So, yeah, anything like that where the children just aren't up for it because their head is somewhere else or when they're about to do something truly unmissable, you know, it's that child's time to shine this week. They're about to go to music or dance and you go, oh, actually, just come and talk to me about maths for 10 minutes. Then, you know, there's a good chance they're not going to appreciate it. So, yeah, thinking about the kind of the wrong time might mean what you what are you taking the children out of or what's going on in the school environment at that time. That means they're just not going to be paying it the full attention. And the other one, going back to something that Matt Swain mentioned before, is the space in which you do it in. You know, he talked before about the kind of the, the bad practice of doing interventions in noisy, cramped, busy, distraction-filled environments. I think it's exactly the same here as well, is that if there isn't the quiet space available, then don't do it then. Don't compromise the environment in which you're doing it in, because it will compromise the kind of the information you get out of it. So, yeah, don't compromise on kind of when to do it if the children are otherwise distracted or the spe- the, the ideal space to do it in just isn't there. I think they've, they've been my two, my two points for that. Yeah, that's a really hard one, I think, actually, talking about when you're, because I'm just, I'm, I'm so pro of it. I'm trying to think of a time when, if there's a possible reason why I, why I wouldn't, or if there's an element of mathematics that isn't so... Uh... Neil, can you think of any subjects you wouldn't do a pre-topic for? Can you think of any, like, curriculum subjects where you think, yeah, this definitely doesn't apply I don't know, to PE or to dance? Maybe it does, and I'm not an expert in those areas. Can you think of any subject areas you wouldn't do it for? So I think, kind of thinking about... Uh, if we move the conversation just away from uh, mathematics, obviously because of the hierarchical nature of maths in that it is building block on building block, I can't think of a reason why one wouldn't do it in maths unless you were early on in your mathematical learning and it might be the first time you come across shape where really like you are teaching that first uh, rung of that ladder as it were certainly when you consider other uh, ele- other subjects depending on what your curriculum is like it might depend whether you choose to do it then so for example in in geography if you're doing some locational knowledge you then may not be the extent of which you would check the prerequisites may not be as much as in mathematics or if you were starting a, a science unit, which was particularly uh, physics heavy, something in you know, the forces uh, unit in physics that they do in year, in year three, you know, it's unlikely that you're going to check the uh, animals, including human. There won't be prerequisites there for animals and including humans, or it's certainly unlikely that there would be. 
However, you know, but there are some cases where in science you would do if you were doing, and indeed, you know, there are some times where you might want to do some prerequisites where actually that knowledge comes from a completely different domain. If you're doing volcanoes and, and, and mountains, you might want to, and you know you're going to answer the question why it is that you know fossils have been found, you know, uh, sea animal, sea animal fossils have been found on on really tall mountains. You might want to make sure that they understand fossil formation first before you do that. So there is that prerequisite there as well, which I think makes the the job harder because that's actually you know you need to know your curriculum very well and you do need to understand you know those links. And if they're there, and when you're doing that between subjects, it's hard. You know, if you're in the same, if it's within subject, within the year group that you teach, it's hard. If it's between subjects within different year groups that you don't teach, um, you know, it gets even harder again. Yeah, recently I've been talking to quite a lot of teachers at one form entry schools where they've got to move three or four subjects. And that's almost your peak level of difficulty, isn't it? You know, I, I really feel for them at the moment because I, 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 I understand the spirit of the direction we're moving, but in terms of, particularly in Kent, where we've got lots of, you know, one half form schools, it must be a pretty intense situation. But um, yeah, and actually we were having a conversation as a leadership team about which subjects we could utilize sort of diagnostic, you know, it, it was more quizzes, but it was which subjects lent themselves to that kind of thinking. So that's a really good question, Tom, and one that I'm going to be sort of thinking about for a while to be fair because you know you, you've got those performance-based subjects but equally the knowledge that you have from before will feed directly into it you know I'm thinking of computing and if you're debugging a program well you're going to need to find out do they know how to write this program do they know how the code fits together you know I think in in, in scratch more often than not you know so I think it's one that definitely worth thinking about this is me potentially doing doing a Lloyd and asking a question, a curveball question of my own. If I were to do it in a foundation subject, is it okay to do it as lesson one of the unit? So, you know, I'm thinking back to when I taught in Wandsworth and we're doing our locality study on the River Wandle. Do I plan the, what do you know about the local area as lesson one and get all that information out there and then sit down and, and change my, my plan for those kind of things. I think I know what the evidence is going to be, but I thought I'd ask it anyway. Uh, for me, again, I think uh, I had to take the same approach to that as I would do now with doing it with maths and that I'd try and find it out. If you are in a school where every half term you change it, uh, you, you change what you're studying, I'd probably want to find that out before the half term ends to make sure that I can use that holiday time to, to plan effectively rather than think oh no you know I've done this I've already planned my six weeks so now I've this this curveball has been thrown up and so you know and then I have to think about what what goes what doesn't go and make all of those kind of curriculum decisions you can ensure then that your the time that you do have and if it, that is half term by half term which would be an interesting uh, conversation for another podcast I think whether a half term is the best unit of time which to work with yeah, whether then, you know, you can then fit what, what time you have, you can then fit in, given what you know, and what you need your children to know, based on those prerequisites as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it does question, does raise the question, why is the KWL grid such a commonly used feature, when the teachers aren't going to respond to the content of it? But again, 
probably a discussion for another day. Yeah, my, my response would have been pretty much exactly the same. Teachers need time to be able to respond and it's not going to happen during term time, is it? You know, because we're just about can do all the things that we're asked to do at the moment. So Kieran, we set off to find nine ways that we can make the most out of our pre-diagnostic assessments. How did we do? So I, th I think we got nine. We need to be prepared in terms of knowing the curriculum, knowing the content and considering, you know, what Tom described as the primary, secondary and tertiary thresholds that pupils need to cut cross through. Collaboration with other teachers, other colleagues, thinking about when, you know, do we do two weeks in advance, making sure we schedule, you know, perhaps at least before the PPA session, before we're going to teach. I think my favorite, having the headspace to think, including primers, you know, not being afraid to go really far back, give the pupils some success, and then draw them into that conversation a lot more fully. Consider the strengths of multiple choice questions. You know, we've discussed those before. What, is, what does a really strong multiple choice question have as its core features? And then utilizing that. Feel empowered to go with the pace your pupils need. Don't compromise on the environment because you'd essentially be compromising on the, the diagnostic assessment itself. And then the last one, be responsive and have the confidence to go from what the data says and go away from the scheme to teach those prerequisites. And I think if we do all of those, we're putting our priorities in the right place and we allow our pupils the best chance to make rapid, but also meaningful progress through that intended curriculum. And I think that ties everything back together. All that's left to say after what was a fascinating conversation is thank you very much, Tom. Thank you. Thank you, Neil. Thank you very much. And to everyone at home, until next time, thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.